Hello, I'm Tim Marlowe, Artistic Director of the Royal Academy of Arts, and this event was part of the Festival of Ideas, an inspiring lineup of talks and debates with innovators from across the arts, brought to you from the new Benjamin West Lecture Theatre. Enjoy the podcast. Cool. Hello, everyone. Right. That was rubbish. Hello, everyone. <laughs> Hello. Oh, jeez. Bunch of recluses have all turned up on a Sunday afternoon. <laughs> right. Uh, my name is uh, Nihal Arthanaika. I'll be, uh, I don't know, chairing is probably not the right word, just facilitating this conversation we're about to have on class, culture and creativity. Um, I should start by introducing uh, everyone. I think that would be good. Uh, to my right is uh, Bob and Roberta Smith, RA, uh, or Bob, as we will call you uh, today. Mm. Your nom de guerre, I guess, in the world of art is uh, Bob and Roberta Smith, uh, RA. Currently got uh, an exhibition here, The Secret to a Good Life. Uh, some people see as a political artist, a, a sloganeering artist, uh, but someone who is so passionate about people having an access to being able to create art and is very, very concerned about how that over, well, decades really has been diminishing people's access to be able to study art and then be able to practice it. Um, I also uh, next want to say uh, hello to Drida Say Mitchell, who is a crime writer, a broadcaster. You will you know, award-winning books, but also on um, Front Row or Women's Hour or Stephen Nolan on, uh, on Five Live, uh, where uh, her and I have uh, chatted before. And then next to Drida is Asif Kapadia, uh, Academy Award-winning, four BAFTAs and one Grammy. Is that right? Is that OK? I mean, I don't like to boast, but, you know, that's, uh, that's basically what he's done. Um, he's, of course, uh, the director of Senna, uh, Amy, the warrior, and at some point next year, Maradona. Uh, and he's off actually to Argentina tomorrow to uh, carry on with that process. And then we have Alison, pretty sign uh, interpretation there. So for anyone who needs sign, then Alison's there for that. So Alison, thank you to you as well for being here. Um, so, class, culture, creativity. I guess. The best place to start, Bob, is, I guess, your own class. How do you define yourself in class terms? Oh, uh, I mean, I think probably rather not, really. But I, you know, no, I, I, I think Lynn Barber came up with a great dis description of herself, which was the first-generation migrant into the middle class, right, okay. <laughs> which I sometimes uh, feel like, uh, uh, because it was... Um, it was really, um, you know, my parents who uh, ha had uh, really deep working class roots. And, uh, uh, but, uh, but I, uh, I mean, I feel, um, but I also, I also feel, I mean, this might be a contentious thing to say, but I also think, think in a strange way, um, uh, when you get involved in the arts and you go to art school, there's, a, there's, a, there's an idea, it might be a mythology, that in art school, you know, you get all sorts of different kinds of people meet. Actually, you get really posh people and you get really talented people. <laughs> <laughs> and then... Not necessarily mutually exclusive. <laughs> Not necessarily. And then, you know, amazing things happen. And I think there's, there, there is a sense somehow when, when you begin to make art, because... Because you're making art, you're looking at the world, you do become a bit of an outsider of it all. So you, and our fellow artists, you know, uh, you know, it's a bit mad being at the Royal Academy and citing things to do with the Royal Academy, but you know, Anthony Gormley and Cornelia Parker, well, Cornelia Parker came from a very uh, working class background and Anthony Gormley is quite posh, but go and see a show by them, they're great friends. We're, you know, there is a sense in some sort of reality that when you make art as an individual practitioner, and I think about myself, I think I'm part of the artist class, actually. Drida? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think, just picking up on what Bob says at the end there, my, my experience, if you like, I'll come back to the first question, in the art world, I don't think the art world is any different from the world outside, and actually I think the art world, in terms of 
class instead of you see lots of people from different class and we're all mixed up together. It's not like that. It is so heavily entrenched. And when I've entered this um, world, it's a very much of a middle class world. So I very much, and I've had a bit of a struggle with myself for many years about how I identify myself. I grew up in the East End of London on a housing estate. My parents were migrants from Grenada. My dad worked in a chicken factory. My mum worked at Mylan Hospital as a domestic, they used to call him as a cleaner. And I very much see myself as a working class person. And the struggle I've had is, but I've lived much of my adult life in a middle class world, if you like, other than when I go home, I still live in the East End of of London. So I've only recently said I am a member of the metropolitan middle class. And that was a real big thing <laughs> for me. But I see myself very much as a working class person. And I tell you why, when I grew up in the East End of London, it's a very different kind of working class world than now. When I grew up, education, for example, it wasn't all the different boroughs. You had one, the Inner London Education Authority, and they put art at the top of the agenda. So education was very different. So, for example, I think one of their big mantras was every child should learn a musical instrument. So here we are living on this very poor East End housing estate. Me and my brothers each had our own guitar that we brought home. And my sister had her own violin, which we wish she didn't bring home because she didn't play it very well. <laughs> but can you imagine? Can you imagine anyone now having those types of stories? My mum and dad used to send us off to Whitechapel Library. We used to go off. We've got an incredible love of books there. And next door to Whitechapel Library was Whitechapel Art Gallery. And we used to sneak in to Whitechapel Art Gallery. So I have this real problem when people say, oh, you came from a deprived background. Economically, we didn't have money. But I tell you what, in the East End of London, our culture was incredibly rich. And this is why I have a real problem with how have I ended up in this art world where children like me from this incredibly rich cultural background, including the Caribbean community, African community, black communities telling stories all the time. Have we ended up, have I ended up in this industry that doesn't have a lot of people like me? Because we're here, we're ripe for the taking because our background has been rich in terms of um, culture. So yeah, I see myself very much as a working class person who has to admit that she is actually very middle class as well. But before I move to Azif, I'm interested to see why you feel as though you have to define yourself as, as middle class now. Because I live, if you came into my house without seeing me and my partner, you would know that's a middle class house just by the way it looks. If you went into my sister's, you would know. So for example, in my house, you've got the lovely rugs, you've got all kind of nice bits of artwork. You go to my sister's, you've got the cabinet full of glasses which is a replica of what my mum's used to be. You know, you've got all the nice little chintz you would have probably got down Roma Road Market, Petticoat Lane. And so okay. when I actually look at physically at my life, that is kind of where I've kind of got to. But I am still very much a working class person. So, for example, my partner, Tony, it was really important for me, as much as I love him, and I do, I adore him, <laughs> but it was really important for me to choose somebody who had a similar experience in terms of class. So we're both kind of working class people who've ended up in very middle class kind of worlds. Okay. Yeah. As if class and how you would self-define. Um, uh, my answer is, I just think it's, it's quite good that a film person is actually here at the Royal Academy. Because <laughs> filmmaking isn't necessarily considered like a fine art. It doesn't mm. often get turned up at these events, you know. Um, so I think there's a whole kind of class divide just in the arts. Um, so I don't know. I know where I'm, where I'm from. Is I, I, I grew up Indian family, Muslim, Stoke Newington, Hackney in the 70s which is not when everyone wanted to hang out in St. <laughs> Martin. Yeah. No, they did not. Uh, going to Homerton House School in Hackney, you know, it was rough. And so that's where we came from. Um, my dad was a postman. My mum brought up five kids, didn't speak English, couldn't write English, was a machinist as well as bringing up five kids. No one I knew, you know, it's a very particular place that I ended up, which is in the film business, um, which is so much of it is about who you know. And it's about being able to go into a meeting and get someone to give you millions of pounds so you go off and make a film, and you may have two or 300 people at work under you. And so you've got to be able to go in there and somehow get them to trust that you can do it. And if you don't know people in the business, if you're not connected, 
if you didn't go to the right schools or public schools or, you know, right university, you don't know those people because I didn't come from a background where I knew anyone in the business. So my thing was to work my way up on a crew, work for free, try just because I loved it and thought, I have run away with a circus. I love this. I don't know anyone in it. I've never really grew up watching movies. My family didn't take me to the cinema. But I like, I can work hard. I'm, I thought, you know, to my advantage was I was streetwise because of where I came from. So I could use my mouth and find a way to get in. And then once I get in, I'll find a way. And that was always like, my background was I'll find a way. <laughs> you know, um, now I'm obviously different. I have different amount of home and house and money and things like that. But it, it was a lot of growing up in that particular place and at that particular time absolutely defined me. I may have left that area, but I'm still the guy from Hackney. Um, and so wherever I am in LA or wherever I may be around the world, I also, I suppose, a big part of growing up in London, and I very much would define myself first and foremost as a Londoner, and then everything else comes after that. Um, European, Londoner, you know, liberal... Uh, you know, I, I feel like I grew up surrounded by people who maybe didn't have lots of money, but who spoke two or three languages without even thinking about it. Mm. And yet we were considered poor and not very well educated. And then I'd go somewhere and people speak one language and they're just like, everyone's stupid because they don't speak English. And you're thinking, well, you know, I can speak three. You know, and that, that was a big part of it. So what's happened is as I made movies, I wanted to make films where I had to be the boss. I had to make the decisions. I had to choose the subject matter. I had to be involved in the financing or how films are sold, who gets hired, who gets fired. And to do that, you've got to be a producer, a writer, a director, in charge of casting. So it very much became, how do you get to the top of the chain? How do you become a person who makes the choices and decisions? And to do that, you have to go to film school. I was lucky at a time when there were grants for people like me to study, to go to university. I got a bursary to go to the Royal College of Art, you know, started off with free school dinners, free school uniforms, you know, that was our background. And from that to kind of try to be somewhere in the system became the, the, the battle. And the only, what I love about the arts, coming from someone who wasn't from an artistic background, was I wanted people to judge me for my work. You take my name away, you look at the work, if you like the work, that's, that's how you prove yourself. And so I studied graphic design and various things where I just wanted to be judged by, not by who I knew or my connections or my parents, but judge me by the work doesn't matter who made it. If the work works, then that's done its job. And so that was always the battle, was to be in a position where you can continue to work, continue to create, and somehow let the work speak. And because I spoke more than one language, I always felt I wanted to be an international filmmaker and not necessarily obsessed with just making films in the UK or about, about coming from a poor place. <laughs> For me, it was all about escape. I want, to go, I want to go and shoot a film in a hot country in the desert. I don't want to make a film about where I come from because it's a bit shit, and I want to show you it's a bit shit. Why would I do that? Exterior desert day. I want to go to a desert. I want to go to the North Pole. I want to go to the Amazon. You know, so that, it was an escape. Um, the reason we're really having this conversation, I guess, is pegged to this report that came out in April of this year, the Panic Report, which showed that there was considerable exclusion for women... Uh, people from working class backgrounds, black, Asian and minority ethnic people in the arts and creative sectors. And the pushback quite often when you say that is, well, Drida, look at you. Look where you grew up. Look how successful you are. You went to SOAS. You did a master's. You then went on to Goldsmiths to do a creative writing course. You have been a success. It's a meritocracy. What are you complaining about? (laughs) We've all heard this pushback, right? We've all heard this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? It's not. A, it's it's absolutely not a meritocracy. If I think about the. But you've been a success. Have I been a success though? This is an interesting thing. Have I been a success? Well, I guess you it depends how you de- yeah. define success. Yeah, yeah. It's how you define success. So, say for example, in the publishing world, really the definition of success is you have to have sold X number of books. I'm talking about the traditional publishing world. Yeah. So, in relation to that, I'm not a success. I'm not that one percent that you have of people in the publishing world who will um, attain that. However, I now feel like more of a success because I've recently left the traditional publishing world and I'm publishing my own books myself with my writing partner. And what we're finding out, it's a bit like Asif, is we're not just having to be a writer, we're having to be our PR people, our marketing people. And and no disrespect to the traditional publishing world, or maybe I am dissing them, I'm not sure. we're doing a better job than they did. 
of representing ourselves, of getting ourselves out there. And what we're also realising is, because I think another part of the narrative is the whole financing. How can anyone afford to kind of be an artist, particularly, say, in the traditional publishing world? You've got your agent, they negotiate a contract for you, and actually the contracts that authors get are really, really bad in terms of percentages of royalties. So most authors actually are having to work full-time as well. But that's irrespective of class. That's the same no matter what class background It's it's not irrespective of class because if you're from a middle-class background, you might have inherited money. So in the traditional publishing world, you've got, I know internships, people frown on it now, but essentially what you've got are interns. You can only be an intern if you come from a background where you have other people who will support you with in, in, in terms of um, money. Okay. So what we found in terms of... Because I have to say this because I think part of the narrative, if you're talking about class and access, is the gatekeepership is changing. So what authors are finding now, if they go and do their own work on a digital platform, they can earn big percentages in terms of royalties... So this whole thing about having to sell 50,000 books, for example, you don't need to. You can live very well if you sold 10,000 books for one book because the royalty payments that you're getting are much, much greater than before. So I think in terms of art and creativity, we talk very much about the traditional world. It's not like that anymore. There's a whole other world out there. Um, Bob, you've talked about how if young artists get into art because they think of the commercial return. Mm-hmm. That's something that concerns you greatly. <laughs> but yet, of course, if you're from a certain background, you know, it's got to make sense financially for you. How can you carry on doing it? So Dreda is saying, of course, in the publishing world now, she can make more money because of a different setup. Mm. But if you're from a working-class background, from the hood, whatever... To make art, to make money, shouldn't be a bad thing, should it? Uh, <laughs> all, these, all these things are really complicated to tease out. It takes a long time to, to do it, really. But I mean, I, I mean, I sort of think on some level about class that uh, you know, wealthy individuals in the, in the visual art world are quite disabled, actually. <laughs> and it's because... Uh, it's because uh, and, and what I'm really worried about... You mean, about, sorry, curators of... No, no, wealthy creators. artists, actually, quite wealthy middle class. I mean, it's middle class and middle class, isn't it? I mean, yeah, there's, kind of, there's different kind of... All kinds of different aspects to, to that kind of question, who's middle class. But I sort of think... I, th- I think one of the things is... What, what really worries me about visual art is that we haven't had a big, crazy moment, uh, a YBA moment, for quite a long time. And, uh, and I think that's also... That's also, uh, you know, come, come about slightly because of change in school fees and all that sort of thing. And it's also because London's become incredibly expensive to live in. And what we're heading towards is a sort of 1930s Bloomsbury sort of scenario where all the people who make art, who can afford to live in London, are quite wealthy. And, and the, kinds of, the kinds of things that they do... Uh, there, are two, there, are, there are a number of different ways to be an artist. But one is to be a, a kind of decorative and abstract artist. And, uh, and I think that's really what the kind of, kind of Bloomsburyite kind of art is. Or you can be like, uh, well, I don't want to name names, but you can be a kind of shaman if you're a wealthy artist. You can, yeah, you can say names, <laughs> come on. Or you can tell people how to live their lives and say, look, if only, the world, uh, if only people live like this. Or... Uh, like Tracy Ehrman or Sonia Boyce or, or uh, to some extent, uh, Damien Hirst, certainly Sarah Lucas, uh, you can be a, actually a storyteller. And actually, if you're a wealthy person, nobody's interested in your blooming stories because we know them. <laughs> and, uh, so, and I'm worried about that because, uh, because that aspect of art actually being about life and everyday life and, uh, and being able to see... Uh, stories that one can relate to is really important because if it if it if it just becomes about kind of ideas about you know a narrative about abs- uh, abstraction or how you how you should live your lives in a sort of shamanistic way uh, that's alienating for the vast majority of the people and then museums become really weird buildings with peculiar stuff in and so so that's why uh, that's why I think 
Can I jump in and just pencils ask? So should be emancipatory. Can I just ask then, just come back to the question. So do you have a problem with people doing art and using art to make a living and be able to put bread on the table? I think, uh, I, think the, I, think the, I think the issue there is uh, complicated because uh, making art is not the most efficient way of doing that for lots and lots of people. But for some people <laughs> who are middle class, it, they, they're able to do it, but they're able to do it because there's money behind them. What I found, what I found now leaving the traditional publishing world is I've met so many authors who you would not find in a traditional publishing world who were making a really good living who are, you know, they don't have to do um, another job. So they're doing what they want to do, but at the same time, they're able to survive. And what worries me when we talk about art now is, and we come to a forum like this, a big part of the missing discussion is, who are the gatekeepers? People are now trying to be their own gatekeepers. Okay, and it's a, not just about buildings okay. like let's this. Bring, let's bring out if, uh, in on that, on gatekeepers, because you're in film, okay? Now, one thing I noticed when I was at Radio 1, was that I joined Radio 1 as a Radio 1 DJ when Radio 1 DJs were gatekeepers. Through MP3s and that changing from physical formats to digital formats, mm. through MySpace, through these things, we became less gatekeepers and more filters. What about film? The gatekeepers, when you first started in it, do they have less power than they once had? I think um, if you... I suppose there's been a shift because, you know, things, if you do filmmaking, it used to be it's all about cinema. Now you have Amazon, Netflix, you have series, you have, you know, longer form. So there's a change in how the medium kind of works. But definitely, you know, if you look in the UK, the people who make decisions in television, for example, most of them went to a few universities. Most of them, and they switch jobs. They may be at B, they may be at Channel 4, then they go to somewhere else and, and they go to Apple or they go, you know, it's the same few people that make choices. That they're not always that varied in terms of where they're all from. Um, in terms of, I think, I think we're kind of, I say, Nihal, when we're, we're talking about somewhere quite late on in the process, the challenge, I think, for filmmakers and coming from certain backgrounds or certain classes is having a career, having a chance to make enough work that people notice you before you get a chance to get a Netflix show, you know, before you get a chance to make feature films. Making one movie could take six... On average, it's like seven years of your life making a feature film. How do you pay the bills? You know, it's simple. How do you survive? So you have to find a way to survive. Now, if your way to pay the bills, or if you have a family, or if you have a mortgage, and you can't survive long enough to write a script, then, or you're relying on that script to somehow make you really wealthy and get you out, it doesn't always work like that. So that's the challenge. The challenge is even if you're making a short film, you put everything into it. It could be a year of your life. No one ever sees mm. it. But you've made something you're proud of. And hopefully, and for me it was always, you just want that one film to give you the chance to make the next one, to make the next one, to make the next one. Eventually, hopefully, you get an agent. If you get an agent, then you might get into the room to have a meeting, to pitch an idea. And someone says, we quite like what you've done there. You've got a good eye. What do you want to do? I've got this idea. And it's like 20 years. It's 10 years. The short term is 10 years from wanting to make movies to, if you're lucky, making a feature or making a TV show. On So you've got to be in it for it. You've got to really love it. You've got to have something that keeps your confidence up and all that struggling in the dark space where you've got to write something in order to go into the meeting to pitch to get the cash to shoot it and then hopefully someone likes it. I just think that's, that's, that's what I would well, say is a challenge. I think I think and I think the, the people who do it, it's, it's, I think the num number of people who are doing it is getting narrower, I feel. Mm. We may differ slightly on this, but I think because the best way to make movies in the end is to go to film school. And there's very few film schools that are good or have spaces. And to get there, you've got to be able to afford the fees. And if mm. you can't afford the fees, mm. if you can't get a place mm. to the national or whatever it may be, or do a degree, it's really hard to do it on your own. Because it isn't like, OK, once I've paid for the materials to make a movie, that's me done for life. You've got to do it every time. You've got to raise another thousand, ten thousand, fifty thousand, hundred thousand, million for the next film and the next film. So it's, it's different in terms of the arts in that way. And then you've got to find a medium to let the audience see it. Bob, you want to come? Well, I was, going to, I was thinking about what Dreda was saying about, you know, earning money through art. And one of the, one of the things about, I mean, we're, we're all from quite different disciplines, so mm. I think the, the economics of how we support ourselves is probably quite different in a way. But uh, there are a lot of artists in my sort of age group, and it really it's a bit like punk, where you, everybody knows them, 
but they don't really make much money. But there are a few people who are really making a lot of money. And the, there'll be an enormous gap if you actually looked at the difference uh, between people's tax returns, actually, uh, between you know, somebody like Damien Hurst and myself. You know. uh, probably, you know, I mean, he's more well-known than I am, but we're, but we're in the same kind of art world. And uh, so, so, these are, so these are kind of economies are very complicated. But one thing I really agree with Trader about is this, this idea of you know, how can you make your art if, or, or do your thing, or how can you do it long enough to begin to get the big gigs? And that's not only about money, it's also about confidence. It's about cultural confidence. And I have a, a funny story to tell about that because my, you know, my parents, uh, they were both working class, hugely aspirant people and their first child, uh, they thought, we'll send our daughter to Godolphin and Latimer School. And, uh, oh no, no, the Lycée Francais. So she was in, so she was a kid, she went to the Lycée Francais in Hammersmith. By the time my, my sister and myself came along, uh, they were completely broke. They couldn't really, they took her out of that school. <laughs> And, and we went to Wandsworth Comp I went to Wandsworth Comprehensive, uh, which was a, like a huge, you know, state school. I loved it. It was really wonderful. Uh, but, her, but she was told at, uh, at the Lycée Francais in Godolphin Latimer, you are one of the top 2% in the country. You will succeed. Mm. We were told, in the same family, <laughs> we were told, if you're very lucky, you might be able to get a job when you get out of here. And that's about, and because I saw her experience, I knew really I was quite like her. <laughs> so I thought, well, I've got loads of confidence. I'll just go out and do it anyway. But it is about, it is about confidence. And we've got to tell every child, every child, their voice matters. You know, that's what we're, that's what we're getting wrong in all, in all of this. That's what the government is getting wrong. Every child matters because every child can contribute to the extraordinary culture that we can, have in I, this country. Can, 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 can just, I get just, it? Just, just very quickly, Sorry, actually, and then I'll just turn it back yeah, in. Yeah, I'll yeah. back in a promise. I think that I absolutely agree. The, 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 It'd be the weird if you disagreed. I totally disagree. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. <laughs> My children <laughs> should not be given <laughs> any kind of encouragement. Come on. So, yeah. yeah, no. Um, the problem <laughs> is, you know, and within my own family members, there are those of us who studied and went to university and mm. did masters, and those of us who didn't, and who feel like they can't afford it, and their kids don't have a chance. Mm. And I think that's the problem, because if you haven't got the money, you can't, you mm. can't even contemplate sending your kids off to college and university. Mm. I think, and then they, they may be the greatest writer, and I think someone in my family, amazing writer, she could have been, never had a chance. And it was literally because she, her, her mum couldn't afford to even contemplate sending her off to study. And it's over. I think she's now stuck from, from a very young age. It's like, just got to work, find a job, pay the bills. Okay. That, that's my problem. That's the worry. Mm. That's, and it's, yeah, there's no yeah. trust fund. Trudem? Yeah. Uh, to tell you the truth, that's how I came up. I, I was a teacher, a deputy head teacher, and worked in local authorities for a long time. Because what I picked up from my migrant family is, in order for me to do some of the things I want to maybe do later on, like write, because I didn't start out saying when I left, you know, I want to be a writer, I had other passions, I had a big passion about education, was I had to be financially sound. So when I was more financially sound, then I started kind of on, on, on my writing um, journey. And it kind of, but what worries me is I only had that pathway. What we need now are lots of pathways. I slightly disagree we, with we, you, we, Bob. But we, we, we have. One, one thing that's interesting, I've been thinking about... Can I say what I was going to say go before, on, go, go because quickly, I didn't on. say it, yeah. Is I slightly disagree with the whole confidence thing. I, I think we are in a state education system that doesn't give our children confidence. But you know what? I know so many confident kids. They want to do things. The problem is, like the person in your family, they know their talent, they know what they want to do. When they try to do it, they hit a brick wall. So the problem is not that person and their confidence. The problem is that organisation which won't allow them to get in. So they keep hitting and hitting. And after a while you think, I'm not going to do this anymore. And actually, I feel pretty exhausted. Let me go off and do something else. Can, can I flip this on its head a bit? I've been thinking yeah. about this quite a lot. And one thing, uh, do you know the artist Ruben Dango? Do you know Ruben? Well, I don't know Ruben, no, but right, tell me okay. about Ruben. <laughs> so does anyone know Ruben in here? Okay. So Ruben painted... Um, portraits in a kind of 19th century English aristocratic style 
of grime MCs. Uh, and Wiley and DEE and all of these guys, right? And Dizzy. And they showed them at the Tate in 2015. And he was asked, oh, how do you feel about that? And he went, nah. It's more important for me for them to be on Instagram. Mm. That's where my market... Over the World Cup, he did some extraordinary drawings of the England... Of, of these images of, of the England... The Russian style. The, the, it, was the, it was the three lions kind of walking up the steps of the plane to get back onto planes. And I can't think it was everywhere. He added 5,000 Instagram followers. One thing about this conversation is, I guess we're all over 40, right? Right? So there's... So, I don't yeah. know about that. <laughs> I, 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 mean, I definitely am. Yeah. No, I'm looking forward uh, to it. Uh, uh, you're looking forward to it? Good, good. I, uh, <laughs> tell us where. We'll all come to your 40th. Um, we look at it as... We need to help these people. But one thing I've noticed working at the BBC is, actually, in order for the Royal Academy to survive, we need them. They don't care. They don't need us as much as we think they do. You talk about the channels. They have the channels. Ruben connects with thousands of people. He doesn't care particularly that it's in Tate. I talk to Grime MCs all the time. These guys are making hundreds of thousands of pounds. They're going to pick what Bentley they want to drive, right? They don't need Island Records to help them. Mm. Publishing, they crowdfund it. They find the ways of getting it. So actually, it's not we that these institutions that need to help them. In order for these institutions to be relevant, we need to entice them to see us as relevant. So this conversation about class and culture and, God, we need to help more black people and more working class people. and, and more the, the younger digital natives are out there just doing it. So not all film, of them. In, no, but not, not all, all of them. Of, no, I, think, but, I think that's a real... I think that's, that's a generalisation. No, but it's based on the fact that it's happening, Drew. It is happening, because I know, because I'm part of that. I'm right. doing that so now. You I'm doing it. my Facebook. I'm so doing aren't we just patronising people? Not patronising. I think what we have to do, if we start talking about creativity and art, why is what you've just talked about not part of the mainstream discussion so that people coming up know because they this don't is the care. way? At the BBC, the BBC's audience is ageing. Mm. Radio 1 listeners, the amount of hours they're spending is less and less, OK? So Radio 1 are not going, oh, we need to help more of them. We're thinking, how can we be relevant to them? So Radio 1 launches its... So Radio 1, when the radar figures go down, Radio 1 points to the fact that YouTube numbers have gone up. Mm. But still, what I'm finding is that some of the... Sorry, Asif, so I does it need to go to film here. school? To go back, does, it, does the filmmaker of today... So you're coming at it from your mm. perspective and your age that they must go to film school, whereas he can connect or okay. she can connect So, Nihal, people, this is right? the deal. If I'm, if I'm just making stuff on my phone and cutting it, why do we have education? You have education because you want to widen your knowledge. Yeah. There are things I know, there are people I know, I make films about them. I won't know about all this other stuff because no one put it in front of my face and said, read that, watch this, it will blow your mind. You might hate it. 20 years later, I go, I saw this film at university. I've never forgotten a particular image because somebody widened my knowledge. That's why we study. Mm. So I'm like, I'm a fan of education. Yeah. I want to learn about things. I think that kid may be amazing, but he's got his market, great. There'll be other people that are like, there's something else out there my family don't have the books. They're not taking me to the theatre. They're not taking me to the cinema. I don't know what it is, but it's some other voice that maybe I have. And that's right. what I'm talking about. I'm just talking about, that's cool. I'm not saying do this or don't do this. I was so glad I studied because I studied the cinema from France, from Italy, from Japan. I happened to write a film that was based on a Japanese photo. And, and that, kid and that came all out of, of that. me being in the place in the where I met someone hand. who had travelled to Japan and who had read Japanese literature and said, you should read this, I think. And yeah. that's how it happens. It's connecting with people you outside have, of your... you had to be almost in front of those people to connect with it them. It couldn't Whereas have this happened kid, had this, I not been kid, at university or film right, school but for this, me. But this kid can now connect with those people around the world. I think there's two things going on here. One is a very positive thing. And one is a slightly problematic thing in the way that your Nihal's, uh, that Asif is saying. Because, uh, <laughs> no, because, uh, 
<laughs> no, because uh, this, 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 we know, we know that social media creates bubbles, don't we? So we know. What do you mean creates bubbles? Explain. Well, it, because, <laughs> well, <laughs> so it's the teacher in me. Explain. Not, not all of well, them. We know, Facebook we know that it's uh, you know they're quite small feed, feedback loops. So there is that aspect no. to that, um, and, and that's what you're. They're actually overwhelmingly it? large feedback loops. No, I mean, can Instagram I say Yes, but they're... they're, 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 they're but, I tell you uh, what, I've, I kind of started in your position because when I came into <laughs> being... <laughs> when I came into being a writer, first of all, I was terribly grateful. I was almost deferential. Somebody's publishing me all this kind of stuff. And, you know, the type of thing I wanted to write. I have to be a great artist. I, I, I agonised over every sentence that I, I, I had to write and all that knowledge you know, in terms of what I'd learned makes great literature at school. And somehow I've ended up, not like this, I would say I started like this actually and gone like this, through Facebook, through connecting to my readers, who I absolutely adore, who are my biggest PR people and marketing people. They want to hear great stories. They're not bothered about a bloody semicolon and all this type so of stuff. So do you not need a publisher? An old I haven't got, publisher I've no anymore. longer got a traditional publisher. I haven't got an agent. So this is the meritocracy? Yeah, and I'll tell this you the, what, and it's classless... not just for the young kids. It's, I'm saying this more for the people who are my age, who've always been called mid-list authors. There is a huge marketplace for you out there on digital platforms because you already have got your readership. Go out there, get your readers because you will end up with better contracts in terms of royalty payments. You right. will be able to be a full-time writer. Can we, can we just bring Bob back, back in? Everyone's song, got different know, experiences. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever yeah. works for yeah. you, isn't it? Yeah. Absolutely. And we're in but, different but disciplines no as well, aren't we? But the yeah. purpose of this conversation, it starts from a starting point based on the panic report that, oh my gosh, black and Asian and women and working class people are being excluded. Well, yeah, no, I think, I think people are being excluded, actually. But I do think there's a peculiar thing going on with uh, student fees. And, uh, and I was talking to Asif earlier about this, uh, which was to do with this, with, this, with, the, with this idea of the gatekeeper. So when I first started working in education, uh, we were the, totally the gatekeepers. All these white men in art schools, we were the gatekeepers. And we were giving people uh, the chance to study art uh, and uh, and lo and behold, I mean, or, or, and white women as well. We're, we're just we're basically picking people like ourselves. That's what used to happen. And now at London Metropolitan University, I think lots of art schools are still doing that actually. But at London Metropolitan University, which is you know just an absolutely extraordinary institution, it languishes at the bottom of every league table <laughs> because uh, because the league tables are slanted for it to sit at the bottom. When you go to the convocation, when you go to the graduation ceremony, it is probably 20% white uh, and mostly uh, uh, really a, a mixed grouping of people getting their degree. And it's because our power as gatekeepers has been diminished, actually, because these people are saying, well, I wanna, I'm going to pay for this degree. I, let me in. And the university's so broke, it's going, yeah, please come in. And that means, actually, that actually the university is much more diverse than it ever was. And it's a peculiar thing. I want education to be free again, but I, want it, I also want it to be as diverse and continue on that mission of diversity uh, that it is at the moment. Can so I, yeah, so I think they're, they're interesting, th and I think that somehow feeds into your narrative about social media, actually, because when I see the kid, when I see kids in the art school, they, they'll be showing me their Instagram feed. They saw, they saw this, and I'll go, well, hold on. You ought to be thinking about this aristocratic conceptual artist Duchamp and actually modern art starts in France in 1914 they're going fuck that I'm not interested in that you know I want to I want to be making this you know I want to be doing that, this that stuff points and so well that's my second point that actually what you're saying it has a lot of validity actually because there is a certain kind of democratization in social media that is interesting that does break through by you know, got Art lambasted just, for yeah. saying feedback loops, but you know, it, it does break through that and it is interesting. It's changing the net and Art actually, doesn't, Art like doesn't, the, but it doesn't belong in institutions, you know. When I think about when I was but growing it's great. up, I'm not saying art belongs in institutions. no, I'm not saying you are, but we, we keep <laughs> it doesn't. Art is kind of everywhere, and but, it's, kind but it's the institutions everything. that are navel gazing and worrying and spending all this kind of 
an anxious yeah, time worrying why people yeah, don't but come they know in. why they know why they know why it's all play acting to me they know <laughs> why this has not happened five years ago two years ago this is how it's been for a long time this is not the first report we've had what, sorry why do you why do you think it's Play acting is quite interesting. To, because to they say. know. For so example, are you saying that institutions are not genuinely interested no, in diversity? Yes, I, and I hate this word diversity. Don't call me diverse or alternative. I'm not diverse. I'm not an alternative. I'm an artist just like Look, everybody. Sorry, they, I don't mean you need how I mean the bigger. Are they or not? Because you're saying they're, no, they're play not. acting. No, they're not. Right, okay. They're not. What so they're, they're not sincere in their... I don't think they are. What, okay. they are. what they're doing, what are institutions do? If I think about the publishing world and other worlds, what they're doing is people have to come through, oh, we'll do something on diversity. We'll have a competition. We'll have an initiative. We'll have an imprint, which an imprint, a literary ghetto. No, thank you very much. I don't want to kind of be in that. They know what they're doing. What they're doing is all the time, because what they say is we're having more women. Oh, we are having more black people and ethnic minorities. Backtrack, those people, oh, they all went to Oxford. They all went to the same kind of school. This is why class is so important yes. to keep a little. So essentially, what those industries keep doing, even when they do have more black people, more um, women, it's multiple birth syndrome. Okay. They are people like us. They are people who went to the same university okay. and school okay. I don't who mean sound to like us. Because we're yeah. running out of time. Sorry. But, but, sorry. Sorry. but as if. You want, to cut, you, you want to come back in on what you've just heard there? You know, yes, there's I'm so sure. much yes, kind of so going agree. on in there. Um, <laughs> good. Right, well, let's move on. Back to Drina. Um, no, I'm, 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 I'm joking. Did I miss the question? No. Uh, uh, it was about a good point, because I saw you kind of going through and going, mm, OK, deep in thought. Uh, uh, sorry. Right. Okay. Uh, no, no, no. I, I want to know, OK, I agree. as if, as well, if I solutions. My, my, but I come, from uh -huh. a different, I come from a different art form, shall we say. Mm. So, so the, the, the interesting thing is, so if I make a film about Amy Winehouse, personally, I don't want anyone to think about who made it. I want you mm. to be moved by the work and to be affected and to, you may have an impression of her at the beginning and hopefully you watch the film and afterwards you have a different impression. And then you think about maybe, oh right, so-and-so's off his head now and, or she, generally it's a woman, you know, she's in a real mess, look at her, can't wait for her to die. And that's, that was the impression I got. People, when I said I was gonna make a film about Amy, there's all this stuff saying, who gives a fuck about, you know, junkie, who cares about her? I'm like, well, that's why I'm going to make this film, because they're idiots like you. I, they may know who made it, they may not know who made it. I personally don't have a massive number of followers or whatever, but a lot of people sort of work. And I suppose that's a different thing. You just want people to see the work, talk about the work, and then you make another piece of work, you make another piece of work. And the job for me in that case is to be invisible. The artist should be invisible. She's the artist. It's about elevating her. And I think that's slightly different for me as a filmmaker is it's you hopefully the work has followers, but yes. you don't want people to kind of be affected by your influence. It should feel like somehow that came together. Same with Senna, The Warrior. All of these things are linked because, you know, The Warrior is a film not in English. I don't know how many British films at the time have been made not in English. You know, with a lead actor, Irfan Khan from India, right? When everyone was doing Cockney gangster films, I wanted to go off and do a Western in India. And so that was because of where I'm from, and that's my, my kind of vision, and that's what I felt I had something to say. So Someone had to fund that, though. And how Then did you you've got to say, say, I've made this short film. It won a prize at Cannes. This is the script. This is what it's going to look like. I'm going to be as good as anyone else that you may already know, because you won't know where I'm from, but I'm going to make however much money you're willing to give mm -hmm. me, I'll make it look like it costs 10 times more because I will put extra work in it. I'll be, it'll be more cinematic than anything else. It was all of this idea of proving it, but he had to come with a bit of a track record. And it was lucky that my student film from the Royal College of Art had won a prize at Cannes and had been quite successful around the world. Didn't really get into festivals in the UK. So I was quite early on thinking, maybe my market isn't here. Maybe my market is international, because I feel more international. And if I win prizes around the world, then people here might notice me. I love living here, but I like working elsewhere. You've said that your background helped you hustle for money. Because of what I said, because of kind of growing up at a certain point, coming from a large family of five kids, I'm the youngest, everyone in Stokey or Hackney at the time, you had to be, you know, if you weren't tough, you had to be mouthy. Mm. And the idea of like, <laughs> and I wasn't tough, but you've got to get yourself, you know, in and out of scrapes. And so that idea of just being able to survive, I was a big fan of early kind of do the right thing, Spike Lee, Filmmakers like that, you know, and then he would talk about Malcolm X or Public Enemy and Chuck D would talk about certain people and then you'd read Malcolm X and then you'd read and you'd go, by any means necessary. That was a line, you know, you're going to make this film, by any means necessary, I'll get it done. 
I'll prove it to you. And that was always the idea. And I suppose kind of what we're all saying, you come from a certain background. You know, I've always worked while I'm studying. I've always known I had to find a way. If I get in debt, it's my debt. I'm not going to get someone, family's going to pay it off. So it always became about being streetwise, being able to survive while studying. While I was at the Royal College of Art, I was shooting commercials. I was all, I'd, I'm just popping out for a sandwich. I'd go off and I'd shoot them and I'd come back, <laughs> sit in the back of the lecture. That was normal, always. You know, I'm always doing three things at a time because that's the only way So that, survive. again, kind of brings me back to the beginning, which is the pushback on this idea of there being entrenched discrimination is, look how hard you worked. And that it, comes your from your family. Hustle. That comes right. from the support. You know, when I grew up, most of my peers parents thought what I was doing was against our religion. Making movies is not something that Muslim kids did growing up in Stone Newington and Hackney. I had friends who literally said, I'm not talking to you anymore because you make films. I, what kind know. of films do they think you were making? I know. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just the act of creating false images was like a big deal still. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. You know, being on yeah. a film yeah. crew, you're the yeah. only non-white person mm. on a film crew, mm. you know. Turning up for things and just assuming you're there to help and it's like, oh, I'm actually directing this one today. You know, <laughs> I've turned up on jobs and people just look past you because they're looking for the guy who's well, directing. I mean, traders, yeah. you've turned up to be on front row Happens and they the thought you were part of the audience. Yep, not, nothing wrong not with being part of the audience, but I was told we're not taking audience members yet, you know, <laughs> it's not, it's not 8.30. And I also said, well, I'm actually on a pan... It's, it's not the first time I've been into schools where people have said to me, you know, I, I hate this... I hate suits. And I went into one of the most liberal schools in this local authority that I was working in as a member of the local authority. And I actually had a suit on because I was going to see the head teacher. And I walked in and a member of staff in this very liberal school came up to me, didn't say, who are you looking for? They asked me if I was looking for the kitchen. That, see, that's my experience. I've had an experience at the BBC. That is my experience of working in, you know, a very middle-class world's if you like, and that's why I think things really, really need to change. I, one of the saving graces, I hope, is what I'm seeing now in a place like London is a lot of the kind of young middle-class kids that I know. It's kind of the world you were talking about with the kids, they're all on social media. There's kind of much more of a mash-up kind of going on, and I'm hoping that, you know, in 10 years' time when I come back to the RA, it's, it's a kind of a... I feel much more of a mash-up. I'm not saying about the RA, but in terms of mm. buildings. And we're not, please stop using this terrible word, diversity and stuff. And let's start talking, because diversity What's doesn't get... What's the word you would rather access. be This is a story about access. Who gets access to things and who doesn't get access to things? It's not about diversity. Keep calling me different all the time. If you keep calling me different, I'm going to be different. And different doesn't end up in the core in the mainstream. Different ends up in a literary imprint over there. The black people. Yeah, I, I find it I, very difficult. I personally yeah. never went for any of the kind of black, Asian, tiny little pot of money over there in Channel 4. Mm. I'm not, not really interested. I remember doing a work placement there and, and everyone there was so worried about their jobs. They're like, you stay in the corner. <laughs> I, was like, I don't want to be here. You know, it's always like, you know, you want to go and be whatever you yeah. do is mm -hmm. equal to Absolutely. everything else that's out there. Um, don't look, stick us in a box. Looking at the report again, it would be easier for this whole conversation just to be drenched in pessimism. So I would like, starting with you, Bob, to tell me that your sources of optimism about greater access to the creative world. Come on. The well, optimism I, challenge. You know, I think the, uh, the biggest failing of people like me over the last 10 years has been uh, trying to work with the... Uh, trying to work with the government to, uh, to do all the things, uh, to, to try and say that the arts are fantastic for employability and all of these, jump through all these hoops, actually. I think well, your we dad, need, your dad I think, did the no, same I, thing, didn't he? I think we need to tell people, uh, to tell people the truth, and actually the truth is a pessimistic story. It's going to be shit, and London is going to be unworkable and unlivable for artists like me, you know, the, the young people like me. And, uh, Not very optimistic so far. No, uh, <laughs> no, I think that. No, I, I really take issue with that. I think. I think. I think that that, that, that narrative 
of uh, that narrative of saying, look, uh, okay, we've got to work with the landscape. The landscape has changed, austerity has happened. We've got to take this on board. We've got to cut our cloth, uh, you know, in, in that way. I think that's the wrong way for people who want to support the arts. They need to stick it to the government and they need to say, you need to fund the arts uh, in primary schools. Get all those primary school kids studying art. Give them all pencils. And you need to do that and not have, and I agree completely with you, it's not about initiatives for particular groups. It's about every child. It's not about grabbing the, the clever kids who are age seven or something. The clever kid age seven might be an idiot age 10. You know, it's about getting every child and saying, look, you, th this could be your story, do it. You know? Okay, Trader? Yeah, I, I Could think you do a better job of optimism? <laughs> yeah, because it's already, it's already happening. People, what, what I perceive happening with, with authors, for example, there's been a real shift in terms of authors feeling who, who they are. What does it mean to be an artist? And it's not just writing something. I can be my own business person. I can do my PR. I can market. I can get access to my readers. I can network with um, um, other authors. So my big thing for the future is already happening is that the grassroots are starting to become the gatekeepers. Okay, as if optimism. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm very optimistic. So, you know, you just, I, I've, I, I don't, I hope this doesn't all sound too negative what we're saying here. I'm with you in terms of it'd be great if kids at schools get, had a chance to do the arts. The truth is it's not happening. Mm. I have kids at school. They're, they're not even having art classes, some of them. No. It's all being cut. It's just study maths and English maths and English. That's all that matters. Test results, test results. League so tables. That's all they care about mm. is league tables. And, you know, that is the beginning of everything we're talking about. So, therefore, if you have league tables, parents want to be in that area over there because they've got an outstanding school, not in a shitty poor area because they've got bad school. <laughs> Everyone moves. The division continues. And you're stuck. You know, certain people are stuck in some certain kind of class and other people can get to another one because they've got good results to get to a good college, good uni, etc. Unfortunately, that's what our government has been doing, is doing, continues to do and everything. So that is all negative. Out of that, you know, if you're lucky enough to have your, you know, some support and love from your family and your parents, then you might be able to just go out and express yourself however you're going to do it. That's where I kind of came from. Youngest of five kids, no one ever told me what to do. No one told me what to study, what not to study. Just, don't get in trouble like your brother <laughs> and you're all right <laughs> and so I did it and I was and that was it you know yeah. it was just just mm. do what you want to do do what you love that's it's really do simple you if love. you love doing something it's not work I don't work for a living I have the best time ever I get to travel the world I get to hang out with you guys and you know and I'm my own boss I think that's a big part yeah, of it absolutely. whatever it is you do if you're lucky enough you've got to get to the top mm. of the power structure and or then or, you or, can make or, decisions. Or create your own power structure. Yeah, but you're then at the top. Power, yeah. Because yeah. You, you're, you're, not, power you're working you're for not, someone else. But you're not I personally to. never liked working for anyone else. Whenever I had a contract, I'm like, I'm not comfortable with this. I quit. And I did. I would also just cut out of it. I'm like, I never want to sign a contract with anyone ever. Okay. I never have. I think we've run out of time, if I'm honest. Uh, we, we can continue it on Instagram, if you oh, wish, or, uh, or on Twitter, on Facebook. Uh, yeah, uh, uh, on that, but uh, at three minutes past Or four. you can see my show. Oh, you can go and see. Yeah, there you go. It's all about social mobility on some level. The secret to a good life happening in this very institution, uh, which has great access for everybody. Uh, as if Cabernia, Drida, Sobenshaw and uh, Bob and Roberta Smith are A. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, have a look at what else is coming up in our brand new lecture theatre at roy.ac forward slash what's on.